Chapter Six of Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed by Edna Ferber. Chapter Six Steeped in German. I am living at a little private hotel just across from the courthouse square with its scarlet geraniums and its pretty fountain. The house is filled with German civil engineers, mechanical engineers, and Herr professors from the German academy. On Sunday mornings we have Fankuchen with currant jelly, and the Herr professors come down to breakfast in fearful flappy German slippers. I'm the only creature in the place that isn't just over from Germany. Even the dog is a dachshund. It is so unbelievable that every day or two I go down to Wisconsin Street and gaze at the stars and stripes floating from the government building in order to convince myself that this is America. It needs only a Kaiser or so and a bit of Unterden Linden to be quite complete. The little private hotel is kept by Herr and Frau Knopf. After one has seen them, one quite understands why the place is steeped in a German atmosphere up to its eyebrows. I never would have found it myself. It was Dr. von Gerhard who had suggested Knopf's and who had paved the way for my coming here. You will find it quite unlike anything you have ever tried before, he warned me. Very German it is, and very, very clean, and most inexpensive. Also, I think you will find material there. How is it you call it? Copy, yes? Well, there should be copy in plenty, and types. But you shall see. From the moment I rang the Knopf doorbell, I saw. The dapper, cheerful Herr Knopf, wearing a disappointed Kaiser Wilhelm moustache, opened the door. I scarcely had begun to make my wishes known when he interrupted with a large wave of the hand and an elaborate German bow. Ach, yes, you would be the lady of whom the Herr Doctor has spoken. Gewiss, Frau Orm, not? But so a young lady I did not expect to see. A room we have saved for you. Aber wunderhubsch. It makes me much pleasure to show. Folgen Sie mir, bitte. You, you speak English? I faltered, with visions of my evenings spent in expressing myself in the sign language. English? But yes, here in Milwaukee it gives Aber mostly German, and then, too, I have been only twenty years in this country, and always in Milwaukee. Here is it gemutlich, and mostly it gives German. I tried not to look frightened, and followed him up to the but wonderfully beautiful room. To my joy I found it high-ceilinged, airy, and huge, with a great vault of a clothes-closet bristling with hooks and boasting an unbelievable number of shelves. My trunk was swallowed up in it. Never in all my boarding-house experience have I seen such a room or such a closet. The closet must have been built for a bride's trousseau in the days of hoop-skirts and scuttle-bonnets. There was a separate and distinct hook for each and every one of my most obscure garments. I tried to spread them out. I used two hooks to every petticoat and three for my kimono, and when I had finished there were rows of hooks to spare. Tiers of shelves yawned for hat-boxes which I possessed not. Bluebeard's wives could have held a family reunion in that closet and invited all of Solomon's spouses. Finally, in desperation, I gathered all my poor garments together and hung them in a sociable bunch on the hooks nearest the door. How I should have loved to have shown that closet to a select circle of New York boarding-house landladies. After wrestling in vain with the forest of hooks, I turned my attention to my room. 
I yanked a towel thing off the center table and replaced it with a scarf that Peter had picked up in the Orient. I set up my typewriter in a corner near a window and dug a gay cushion or two in a chafing dish out of my trunk. I distributed photographs of Nora and Max and the Spalpeens separately, in couples and in groups. Then I bounced up and down in a huge yellow brocade chair and found it unbelievably soft and comfortable. Of course, I reflected, after the big veranda and the apple tree at Nora's and the leather cushioned comfort of her library and the charming tones of her oriental rugs and hangings. Oh, stop your carping, Don, I told myself. You can't expect charming tones and oriental doodads and apple trees in a German boarding house. Anyhow, there's running water in the room. For general utility purposes, that's better than a pink prayer rug. There was a time when I thought that it was the luxuries that made life worth living. That was in the old bohemian days. Necessities, I used to laugh. Pooh, who cares about the necessities? What if the dishpan does leak? It is the luxuries that count. Bohemia and luxuries. Half a dozen lean boarding-house years have steered me safely past that. After such a course in common sense, you don't stand back and examine the pictures of a pink Moses in a nest of purple bulrushes, or complain because the bureau does not harmonize with the wallpaper. Neither do you criticize the blue and saffron roses that form the rug pattern. Deedy not. Instead, you warily punch the mattress to see if it is rock-stuffed, and you snoop into the clothes closet. You inquire the distance to the nearest bathroom, and whether the payments are weekly or monthly, and if there is a baby in the room next door. Oh, there is nothing like living in a boarding-house for cultivating the materialistic side. But I was to find that here at Knopf's things were quite different. Not only was Ernst von Gerhard right in saying that it was very German and very, very clean, he recognized good copy when he saw it. Types! I never dreamed that such faces existed outside of the old German woodcuts that one sees illustrating time-yellowed books. I had thought myself hardened to strange boarding-house dining-rooms with their batteries of cold, critical women's eyes. I had learned to walk unruffled in the face of the most carping, suspicious, and the fishiest of these batteries. Therefore, on my first day at Knopf's, I went down to dinner in the evening, quite composed and secure in the knowledge that my collar was clean and that there was no flaw to find in the fit of my skirt in the back. As I opened the door of my room, I heard sounds as of a violent altercation in progress downstairs. I leaned over the balusters and listened. The sounds rose and fell and swelled and boomed. They were German sounds that started in the throat, gutturally, and spluttered their way up. They were sounds such as I had not heard since the night I was sent to cover a socialist meeting in New York. I tiptoed down the stairs, although I might have fallen down and landed with a thud without having been heard. The din came from the direction of the dining-room. Well, come what might, I would not falter. After all, it could not be worse than that awful time when I had helped cover the Teamsters' strike. I peered into the dining-room. The thunder of conversation went on as before, but there was no bloodshed. Nothing but men and women sitting at small tables, eating and talking. When I say eating and talking, I do not mean that those acts were carried on separately. Not at all. The eating and the talking went on simultaneously, neither interrupting the other. A forkful of food and a mouthful of ten-syllable German words met, wrestled, and passed one another unscathed. I stood in the doorway, fascinated, until Herr Knopf spied me, took a nimble skip in my direction, twisted the discouraged moustaches into temporary sprightliness, and waved me toward a table in the center of the room. Then a frightful thing happened. When I think of it now, I turn cold. The battery was not that of women's eyes, but of men's. And conversation ceased. 
The uproar and the booming of vowels was hushed. The silence was appalling. I looked up in horror to find that what seemed to be millions of staring blue eyes were fixed on me. The stillness was so thick that you could cut it with a knife. Such men! Immediately I dubbed them the Aborigines, and prayed that I might find adjectives with which to describe their foreheads. It appeared that the Aborigines were especially favored in that they were all placed at one long, untidy table at the head of the room. The rest of us sat at small tables. Later I learned that they were all engineers. At meals they discuss engineering problems in the most awe-inspiring German. After supper they smoke impossible German pipes and dozens of cigarettes. They have bulging, knobby foreheads and bristling pompadours, and some of the rawest of them wear wild-looking beards and thick spectacles and cravats and trousers that Lou Fields never even dreamed of. They are all graduates of high-sounding foreign universities and are horribly learned and brilliant, but they are the worst-mannered lot I ever saw. In the silence that followed my entrance, a red-cheeked maid approached me and asked what I would have for supper. Supper? I asked. Was not dinner served in the evening? The aborigines nudged each other and sniggered like fiendish little schoolboys. The red-cheeked maid looked at me pityingly. Dinner was served in the middle of the day, naturally. For supper there was Wiener Schnitzel and Kalter Aufschnitt, also Kartoffelsalat and fresh Kaffeekuchen. The room hung breathless on my decision. I wrestled with a horrible desire to shriek and run. Instead I managed to mumble an order. The aborigines turned to one another inquiringly. Was hat sie gesagt? they asked. What did she say? Whereupon they fell to discussing my hair and teeth and eyes and complexion, and German is crammed with adjectives, as was the rye bread over which I was choking with caraway. The entire table watched me with wide-eyed, unabashed interest while I ate, and I advanced by quick stages from red-faced confusion to purple mirth. It appeared that my presence was the ground for a heavy German joke in connection with the youngest of the aborigines. He was a very plump and greasy-looking aborigine, with a doll-like rosiness of cheek and a scared and bristling pompadour and very small pig eyes. The other aborigines clapped him on the back and roared, "Ay, Fritz! Jetzt brauchst du nicht zu weinen! Dein Lina war aber nicht so hoops, eh?" Later I learned that Fritz was the newest arrival, and that since coming to this country he had been rather low in spirits in consequence of a certain flaxen-haired Lena whom he had left behind in the fatherland. An examination of the dining-room and its other occupants served to keep my mind off the hateful long table. The dining-room was a double one, the floor carpetless and clean. There was a little platform at one end with hardy-looking plants and pots near the windows. The wall was ornamented with very German pictures of very plump, bare-armed German girls being chucked under the chin by very dashing, mustachioed German lieutenants. It was all very bare and strange and foreign to my eyes, and yet there was something bright and comfortable about it. I felt that I was going to like it, aborigines and all. The men drink beer with their supper and read the Staatszeitung and the Germania and foreign papers that I never heard of. It is uncanny in these United States but it is going to be bully for my German. After my first letter home, Nora wrote frantically, demanding to know if I was the only woman in the house. I calmed her fears by assuring her that while the men were interesting and ugly with the fascinating ugliness of a bulldog, the women were crushed-looking and uninteresting and wore hopeless hats. I have written Nora and Max reams about this household, from the aborigines to Minna, who tidies my room and serves my meals and admires my clothes, Minna is related to Frau Knapf, whom I have never seen. 
Minna is inordinately fond of dress, and her remarks anent my own garments are apt to be a trifle disconcerting, especially when she intersperses her recital of dinner dishes with admiring adjectives directed at my blouse or hat. Thus, Wir haben roast beef und Sperribs mit Sauerkraut und Schicken. Ach, wie schon, Frau Arm, aber ganz prachtvoll. Her eyes and hands are raised toward heaven. What's prachtvoll, I asked, startled. The chicken? Nein, your waist. Selbst I'm even becoming hardened to the manners of the aborigines. It used to fuss me to death to meet one of them in the halls. They always stopped short, brought heels together with a click, bent stiffly from the waist, and thundered. Nobben, Fräulein! I have learned to take the salutation quite calmly, and even the wildest, most spectacled and knobby-browed aborigine cannot startle me. Nonchalantly I reply, Nobben, and wish that Nora could but see me in the act. When I told Ernst von Gerhard about them, he laughed a little and shrugged his shoulders and said, "'Nah, you should not look so young and so pretty and so unmarried. In Germany a married woman brushes her hair quite smoothly back and pins it in a hard knob, and she knows nothing of such bewildering collars and fluffy frilled things in the front of the blouse. How do you call them? Jabots?' Von Gerhard has not behaved at all nicely. I did not see him until two weeks after my arrival in Milwaukee, although he telephoned twice to ask if there was anything that he could do to make me comfortable. Yes, I'd answered the last time that I heard his voice over the telephone. It would be a whole heap of comfort to me just to see you. You are the nearest thing to Nora that there is in this whole German town, and goodness knows you're far from Irish. He came. The weather had turned suddenly cold, and he was wearing a fur-lined coat with a collar of fur. He looked most amazingly handsome and blonde and splendidly healthy. The clasp of his hands was just as big and sure as ever. "'You have no idea how glad I am to see you,' I told him. "'If you had, you would have been here days ago. Aren't you rather ill-mannered and neglectful, considering that you are responsible for my being here?' "'I did not know whether you, a married woman, would care to have me here,' he said in his composed way. "'In a place like this people are not always kind enough to take the trouble to understand, and I would not have them raise their eyebrows at you, not for—' "'Married!' I laughed, some imp of willfulness seizing me. "'I'm not married. What mockery to say that I am married simply because I must write Madam before my name. I am not married, and I shall talk to whom I please.' And then von Gerhard did a surprising thing. He took two great steps over to my chair and grasped my hands and pulled me to my feet. I stared up at him like a silly creature. His face was suffused with a dull red, and his eyes were unbelievably blue and bright. He had my hands in his great grip, but his voice was very quiet and contained. "'You are married,' he said. "'Never forget that for a moment. You are bound, hard and fast and tight, and you are for no man. You are married as much as though that poor creature in the madhouse were here working for you, instead of the case being reversed as it is. So.' "'What do you mean?' I cried, wrenching myself away indignantly. "'What right have you to talk to me like this?' You know what my life has been, and how I have tried to smile with my lips and stay young in my heart. I thought you understood. Nora thought so, too, and Max. I do understand. I understand so well that I would not have you talk as you did a moment ago, and I said what I said not so much for your sake as for mine. For, see, I too must remember that you write Madam before your name, and sometimes it is hard for me to remember. Oh, 
I said like a simpleton, and stood staring after him as he quietly gathered up his hat and gloves and left me standing there. End of chapter 6